0: We are going to take a one-week break from our walk through the Book of Colossians this morning, and so if you have your Bible, you can begin opening towards the very end. And we're headed to the Book of Second Peter, for Second Peter, for Second, Third John, Jude, Revelation. So all the way there at the end, Second Peter, and Chapter One is where we will be this morning. Uh, we had an awesome time last weekend celebrating Jesus' death on Good Friday and His literal bodily, miraculous resurrection on Easter Sunday, and uh, had a a lot of folks here, and I'm I'm very aware this time of year that we often have, and many churches have, uh, new visitors who are maybe investigating Christianity for the first time, or maybe they were in and around Christianity as a child and are considering coming back into uh, the faith Um, And so I feel like this time of year, right after Easter, is a great time to, to address one of the obvious questions that I think both believers and unbelievers might have, which is when we talk about the reality of what Scripture tells us, that Jesus bodily rose from the dead, it can lead to a question sort of behind the question, which is, why do you believe the Bible? Why do you believe what the Bible says? In particular, such an audacious claim that Jesus rose from the dead. And so if you are investigating Christianity, I hope that this scratches maybe an itch that you have. Uh, But for many of us as believers, uh, whether you've been raised in church or not, you may have had these sorts of conversations with people and not quite been sure how to answer that question, Uh, essentially, why is it that I would believe what the Bible has to say? Um, this morning as well, I'm going to do something that is fairly unique. I've only done this once ever in my preaching career. This will be the second Sunday. I'm going to preach to you a sermon that, for the most part, I did not write. Um, I'm, <laughs> did I hear a cheer? Oh, man. Um, this is a sermon that was written by a man named Pastor Votie Bauchum. Uh Some of you may be familiar with him. Um, pastor Vodi, for years, was the pastor of Grace Family Baptist Church in Texas, And for about the last eight or nine years, he's actually served in Zambia, Africa, as the dean of the School of Divinity at African Christian University, Uh, frankly, because the gospel is just exploding on the African continent, and he wanted to go and be there and be a part of that work. And so he has uh, offered us from the scripture an answer to what he would say, and I would agree, is one of the most important questions that anybody has, which is, why do I choose to believe the Bible? And so our answer comes from Scripture. I have good news for you this morning. The Bible has a great answer to that question. And so here now, one of many places, this is 2 Peter chapter 1, and I'm going to read to us verses 16 all the way to 21. Hear the word of the Lord. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, quote, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Let's go to God in prayer and thank Him for this very Word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You. We thank you that you have sent Jesus, who is the word of God made flesh, and we thank you for the word, the 66 books of the Bible, your love letter to us, your word of truth to us. And Father, we don't stand over your scripture this morning, but rather we come and we stand under it. We humble ourselves and we desire to hear from you and learn from you. you. Lord, we need your grace and we need your truth. And so we come to you expectantly this morning, grateful for what you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Five answers this morning. See, I didn't write it, so now there's a (laughs) five-pointer. Five answers to this question, this all-important question, why do I choose to believe the Bible? Number one is this. Actually, before we get to number one. uh, A lot of conversations uh, between somebody who is a follower of Christ and somebody who's maybe investigating, a lot of those questions will begin with a, what do you, to the believer, what do you believe about such and such a, a spiritual religious topic? They'll ask you, and you'll give an answer, and then um, they'll follow that up with, well, why do you believe that? And your answer to that will be, well, because the Bible says so, and you'll feel good inside, feel proud that you're able to answer, well, because the Bible says so, I believe that, and then they follow up with, well, why do you believe what the Bible says, and suddenly you feel a little less confident, not quite sure what to say, and for many believers, that feels like game over because you're not really sure what to answer. And, uh, and so typically what we do is we fall back and we retreat to one of two, what I'm going to describe to you as bad arguments, not helpful arguments. So let's look at two bad arguments, two lousy answers to this question. And the first is this, bad argument number one, I believe the Bible because that is the way I was raised. I believe the Bible because that is the way I was raised. Believer, I love you. Don't do that. It's not a helpful answer. The problem is that many things we were raised to believe we we later learn in life weren't really true. If you were raised to believe that Santa was real, I don't mean to be a spoiler alert here, but he's not actually Real Now, parents, this doesn't mean that you should not train and disciple and lead your children in, in learning, studying, and growing in faith, learning the word, learning how to pray. But it does mean the reality behind all of this is that your children's faith is not ultimately in you. Your children's faith is ultimately in the Lord. And so the problem that we come to is what if someone else says, well, I was raised a different way. Um, my wife and I, uh, several years ago, early on in our marriage um, Alana likes cupcakes, I like cupcakes, so we're enjoying a cup take, cupcake together. She's like, where is this illustration going? <laughs> we're eating cupcakes, and um, she says to me, do you like the jimmies?" I said, who's Jimmy? <laughs> she goes, do you like the jimmies?" I go, do you mean the sprinkles? She's like, no, I mean the jimmies." <laughs> she was raised to understand that the little things on the cupcake are called jimmies. And in my disgust, I was like, well, I was raised to call them sprinkles. And so we have a conundrum here. We were both raised to believe something different. Now, on the side, they're sprinkles. They're not jimmies. But <laughs> we, we had this, this, this impasse that we couldn't get through. And it is the same when someone says to you, well, I was, I was raised to believe that Allah is God. And you were raised to believe that Jesus is God. The, the answer is in what is the truth, not, well, I was raised to believe such and such. That's bad answer number one. Bad answer, bad argument number two is this. I believe the Bible because I tried it, and it worked for me. I believe the Bible because I tried it, and it worked for me. Now, this is a very popular and attractive one in our culture because most people today tend to believe that the only thing that you can know for certain is that which you have experienced for yourself, Now, many Christians have a very real, very valuable, genuine testimony that gets something like this. I tried it and it worked for me in the sense that they can honestly say, before I met Christ, I was a fill in the blank. I struggled with this sin. I didn't have answers. My life was difficult. I was bound to this particular temptation. And in Christ, I found a real freedom. I experienced new life. And believer, that's an important part of your testimony. But if the only answer that you have is I tried it and it worked for me, uh, Vodi Bauckham says it this way. This opens up a logical hole big enough to drive a Mack truck through. For example, there's a guy. He's been an alcoholic for 10 years. He, he goes to an AA meeting. And at the AA meeting, they say, you need to find your higher power. Well, he couldn't find his higher power for quite some time. Until he went home, he looked out the window one day, and he saw a squirrel. And he saw the squirrel outside of his window, and he decided that squirrel is going to be my higher power, and he hasn't had a drink since. He tried the squirrel, and it worked for him. So by your logic... The squirrel has the same authority as the scripture. Now, you may be saying, well, pastor, you just took away my best two answers. That's really all I've got. I tried it. It worked for me. Uh, I was raised to believe the Bible. Uh, Vodi Bauckham, in his own testimony, says, well, let me encourage you, that wasn't the story for me. Vodi would say, I was raised in the projects uh, in Los Angeles by a single teenage mother, He says, I don't believe the Bible because I was raised that way, because I wasn't raised that way. He says, my mom grew up in church, but for the first time, my mom found some people that lived what they believed when she visited a Buddhist temple. She tried it, and it worked for her. He says, I don't just believe the Bible because it works for me or because I was raised that way. He says, I was first exposed to the gospel when I was a college student. And he says, six months after I first heard the gospel, I accepted Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. And very soon after, I had the privilege of sharing the gospel with my mother and leading her to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So he says, and the scripture says this morning, here is why I choose to believe the Bible. I found this to be a very helpful walkthrough when I'm conversing with people who have these sorts of questions. And so here is his answer to be on the screen behind me. He says, I choose to believe the Bible because it is a reliable collection of historical documents written down by eyewitnesses in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. It reports supernatural events in fulfillment of specific prophecy and claims to be divine rather than human in origin. (laughs) That's why I choose to believe the Bible. Now we're going to walk through what was just said there because what that is is a summary of what we just read here in 2nd Peter. So number 1. Because it's a reliable collection of historical documents. I choose to believe the Bible because it's a reliable collection of historical documents. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16 begins this way. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we talk about the Bible as a unit, and it is a unit. It is one singular whole, the Bible. And it is at the same time 66 individual books written by over 40 different authors Over an entire period of some 1,500 years, written in three different languages, Greek, Hebrew, and a small portion in Aramaic. And we have to date more than 23,000 archaeological digs confirming, investigating and confirming various historical aspects of the Bible. And not one page of scripture has ever been disproven. If it was, it would be front page news, wouldn't it? If you want to go front page, all you have to do is attack the Bible. All you have to do is attack the historical Christian faith. But these people are grasping at straws when you try to undermine the historicity of the Bible. The writer of the Gospel of Luke, also named Luke, puts it this way at the very beginning of Luke. This is Luke chapter 1 and verse 1. who have compiled an orderly account of actual things that really happened among us so that you can have certainty, certainty in your faith. I choose to believe the Bible because it's a reliable collection of historical documents. You say, well, how do we know? Number two, because it is written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. 2 Peter 1.16 finishes with, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Uh, A couple years ago, Alana and I uh, watched a detective show called Bosch. Anybody ever seen Bosch? Just us. Okay, all right, cool, cool. So, Bosch is a detective mystery show... What's gonna happen next, who done it, and they keep you, you know on the edge of your seat until the ultimate reality is finally revealed. So you don't know as you're walking through as any in any good mystery, you don't know what the, the truth is. It would kind of mess up the storyline and the show, just a tad, if episode one, two minutes in, they bring up 40 different eyewitnesses who all say, This is exactly what happened. I saw it, and they all agree, right? Mystery, gone. And that's exactly what we have in the scripture. The mystery, the drama is, is gone. If we go to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, no one disputes that 1 Corinthians, the book, the letter, was written about 50 AD, extremely early. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Cephas is another name for Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, which is a nice way of saying they died. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Here, Paul is saying that there are still, even after all these years, hundreds of eyewitnesses that are still alive, and he's writing this 17 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, and they saw it. So if you had been around then, he's saying, go ask Jimmy, go ask Bobby, they saw it too. Now, you may or may not be familiar with a book that came out while I was in college, uh, 2003, right? We have Dan Brown who writes the stunning work, The Da Vinci Code, a mystery thriller, if you will. And the idea behind The Da Vinci Code was that the Bible that we have today is not the original Bible. It's not reliable. And the argument was that because later Christians, that Christian community changed it, they added in the miracles, they added in the deity of Christ. They, they claimed the first time that Jesus was, was really God. Based upon what? Based upon nothing. Based upon zero evidence. Based upon Dan Brown's imagination. And really, based upon Dan Brown's presuppositions, I assume this couldn't happen, therefore it didn't happen. What we have instead are these realities. And to to, to dig a little further, and just so you know, we're going to spend the most time in point number two. To dig a little further in this, there are two basic arguments that suggest this idea that the Bible has been changed over time. So let's give them their, their voice to see what their suggestions are. Argument number one, right, attacking the scripture. Argument number one is the multiple translator argument. The multiple translator argument. This is a favorite among college professors. And as you go away to college one day, if you're going to a secular university, even many quote-unquote Christian universities, you should be prepared for this argument. And they will use the example of a game of telephone. My kids love to play telephone. There's only three of them, and they sit in the back seat, and it drives me crazy on a road trip when they're playing telephone. (laughs) But a better version of telephone is you have 10 people spread around the room and you whisper the same phrase from person one to person two, from person two to person three, and you see over the long haul that original sentence that person one said, how much has it morphed and changed or exaggerated, gotten distorted by the time you get to person 10? So that's the multiple translator argument. And they're saying, listen, the Bible's been translated so many times over the years that it is no longer reliable. Uh-oh. What do we do about that? Guys, this is a completely and utterly dishonest argument. The reality is this. It does not matter how many times the Bible has been translated. It would only matter if they were translations of translations. Okay, that's the argument of telephone, that it's a translation of a translation. To put it into Bible terms, that would be, you know, we preach from the English Standard Version typically here. So that would mean if the ESV was a translation of the NIV, and the NIV was a translation of the New American Standard Bible, and the New American Standard Bible was a translation of the New King James Version, and the New King James Version was a translation of the old King James Version. But that is absolutely not the case. Every time we have a translation of the Bible, it is always going back to the original Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. So what we have here, this argument, is a completely either ignorant argument, or it's an evil argument, or it's both. Every translation is from the original Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. So much for that argument. Argument number two is the overzealous monk argument. The overzealous monk argument. And this begins with the theory that Emperor Constantine told the the Christian council of Nicaea that met back in 325 AD that they were going to be limited as they decided what the Bible was going to be. Uh, Constantine, a politician, says you're limited to only 66 books and you have to leave out any other books. And so all these other great books of the Bible are suddenly being cut out. And that he basically instructed these monks, these overzealous monks, to go back and trim the fat and and change anything that doesn't match what they wanted it to say. Here's the problem there's absolutely zero evidence of anything like that ever happening. What we have in the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD was simply an acknowledgement of what was already the canon, C A N O N, the canon the collection of scripture as given by the Lord himself. Because this is what had long since already been recognized as the inspired word of God. Not just from the Council of Nicaea, we have early church fathers, among them Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Justin Martyr, and Papias, to name a few, who before 200 AD all had the same view, the same list of what is the canon, the same 66 books. Origen, Church Father Origen, has the same list of 27 New Testament books in 250 AD. Athanasius, <clears throat> excuse me, has the same, uh, the same list in 367 AD. But even if we, if we want to go beyond that, there are essentially three holes in this overzealous monk argument. So, hole number one in, in this overzealous monk argument hole number one is the manuscript hole. The manuscript hole. Here's the facts we have more than 6,000 New Testament manuscripts. If you include the Old Testament, which we should, then we have over 20,000 manuscripts of the scripture written as early as 25 years after the writings of the originals. Now you go, well, that seems, that seems questionable. Well, let's compare that to anything else that exists on planet Earth. Okay, so Julius Caesar, we have a book called The Gallic Wars. You may or may not have heard of The Gallic Wars. How many copies, original copies, do we have of Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars? Less than 12. Less than 12. Well, you say, well, how do we know what we know about Julius Caesar? Only from The Gallic Wars. How about Aristotle's Poetics? How many copies do we have of Aristotle's Poetics? Less than 10 copies. How do we know about Aristotle? Only from Aristotle's Poetics. How about Socrates? From Socrates, we have a grand total of zero original manuscripts. How do we know about Socrates? Everything we know about Socrates was written by somebody else, a guy by the name of Plato. But I heard we don't have any of the originals of the New Testament. We don't have the original of the New Testament. Yes, you are correct. We do not have the original piece of paper that Matthew, Mark, Luke and John sat down, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and took quill and wrote it on those papers. We do not have that original paper. To be clear, that original paper, we would refer to as the original autograph. Like that is the very first paper, which were absolutely and are absolutely the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God. The earliest that we have are around AD 120, or about 25 years after the original, the final originals would have been written. And then we have another 6,000 that run constantly from that moment all the way up through the Middle Ages. And then from there, we have our continued modern writings. So how does this compare to the other stuff that we have? 25-year gap. Julius Caesar was written 100 years after the original. Aristotle, Aristotle's Poetics, written 1,400 years after the original. Socrates, we have nothing. How about Homer's Iliad? How many of you guys had to read Homer's Iliad in high school or college? The earliest version of Homer's Iliad that we have was written 2,100 years after the original. And no one questions the authenticity of any of those manuscripts. And keep in mind that the best way in that era to preserve something was to memorize it orally. And so we have these oral translations, both of the scripture and of these other writings that are continuing on forward. So hole number one, we have the manuscript hole. Hole number two, we have the language hole. Matthew 28 in the New Testament, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. Well, we have one particular challenge that we still face today with going to all nations, and that is that all nations speak a lot of different languages, don't they? So early on in the very first few centuries of the New Testament, we have the very first translations of the New Testament. The Bible, the word of God, going to every tribe, tongue, and language. And the first translations were in Syriac, Coptic, and Latin. So if we go back to this overzealous monk idea, now our overzealous monks have to find all the manuscripts in Greek. All those original early on manuscripts. they got to find them. they got to steal each of those manuscripts without getting caught. they got to change all of the Greek... Don't show any ink work that would indicate that you changed them, and then put them back without being noticed. Then we also have to go and learn how to lie in Syriac, Coptic and Latin. Find all the Syriac, Coptic and Latin translations. Change all of those manuscripts to match your lies. Don't get caught in your ink work, and then put them all back without getting caught. And then you have to make all those lies match the lies that you changed in the original Greek. That would seem unlikely. But hole number three is this. Hole number three is the early church father's hole. Not only do you have to change, you have to lie, make everything match up. Bible scholar Bruce Metzger says that 95 to 98% of the New Testament can be recreated just through the, the writings of the early church fathers. So that is... Early church fathers writing down basically commentaries on the original Bible. There are only 11 verses of the entire New Testament that cannot be reproduced simply by looking to the early church fathers. So now the overzealous monk has to find not only all of the Syriac and Greek and Coptic and Latin. Now he's got to find every writing of every church father, change all of those, don't show your ink work, put it all back and we could estimate conservatively that it would take you 300 years to get this job done that is our overzealous monk argument destroyed number 3 they report supernatural events i choose to believe the bible because those eyewitnesses well they report supernatural events going back to second peter now chapter 1 verse 17 and 18 For when he, that is Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, quote, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Here, the the Bible records the audible voice of God Almighty speaking. And Peter here is recounting the moment that we refer back to as the transfiguration, And the transfiguration is recorded in Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. Well, how does Peter know? Because he and John were eyewitnesses of this supernatural, miraculous event. Now, the Bible also, as you are well aware, in the Old and the New Testament, it reports things like healings. It reports miracles. We have the story of the man with a withered hand, Matthew chapter 12. Jesus doesn't even touch the guy. Jesus just looks at him. He says to the man, show me your hand, and instantly the man's hand is fixed. It's a miracle. How about Jesus heals a woman when she just touches the edge of his outer garment? Or Jesus brings a dead girl back to life when he shows up too late to save her? Or how about Jesus raising his friend Lazarus back from the dead? Uh, Vodi says that his favorite is when Jesus says to the, uh, the disciples, hey, guys, I'll meet you on the other side of the lake. You can imagine being one of the disciples. They're on the boat. One of them looks out, and, and they see something, and they're like, hey, hey, y'all, um, did Jesus say how he was coming? No, why? Because he's coming. What do you mean? And he's walking on the water he shows up. A miracle, to be clear, and the most important one of all. Jesus crucified, Jesus dead, and three days later, Jesus resurrected. Historical miracle taking place that three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. The Bible unashamedly, unapologetically reports supernatural, miraculous events. Number four, that took place in fulfillment of specific Prophecies. See these these miraculous, these supernatural events take place in fulfillment of very specific prophecies. Second Peter 1, verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. We could look at example after example, but we'll look at one example here of the hundreds. We go to the New Testament, Matthew 27, 46, and also Mark 15, 34. It tells us that one of the last things Jesus says on the cross before he gives up his life, in Aramaic, he cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama Tani, which means in English, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If we go back to the Old Testament, Psalm Chapter 22 and verse 1 says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen to Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8. An extended dialogue, description here. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Y'all, Jesus was scorned. Jesus was despised. That mocking sentence is the exact words that Roman soldiers said to Jesus as he hung on a cross. Pick it up in verse 14 of Psalm 22. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. Hmm. Wow. Poured out like water, and my heart melts. The Bible in the New Testament says that blood and water flowed from Jesus' side when he was stabbed in the side. Scientifically, evidence of hypovolemic shock taking place. It says his tongue is dried up. Jesus said on the cross, I thirst, and refused their wine vinegar. It says that dogs surround me. Well, dogs is a term for Gentiles and Roman soldiers, was exactly what surrounded him in that day. Surrounded by evil men, says Psalms. Jesus was crucified between two criminals. Pierced my hands and feet. Hmm. Nails pierced Jesus' hands and feet. Count all my bones, says Psalms. Remember, Jesus' legs weren't broken. The Bible goes out of its way to describe, as they normally would do to finish off someone who has been crucified. But Jesus had given up his life already. He was dead already, and so they left his bones alone. It says that they cast lots for his clothing, which is exactly what the soldiers did in the New Testament. They cast lots for his clothing, And Psalm 22 was written by King David some 1,000 years before the historical event of Jesus' crucifixion at a time when crucifixion had not yet been invented. And we could do the exact same thing by going back to Isaiah 53, written 700 years before Jesus. Fifth and finally, the Bible, it claims that the writings are divine Rather than human in origin, not just here in 2 Peter, but throughout. There is a claim made that what you are reading in the Bible is divine in its origin, not human. 2 Peter 1. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Divine rather than human in origin. One of the things my, my kids and I do together uh, some mornings is we are, we're studying, we're memorizing the Westminster Shorter Catechism, okay, which is a, a way for our kids to learn Bible facts in, in an easy way for them to memorize. So question number 15 is, who wrote the Bible? And If you ask my kids the question, who wrote the Bible, they will answer you from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which says, chosen men inspired by the Holy Spirit chosen men inspired by the holy spirit 2nd timothy 3:16 and 17 says it this way all scripture is god breathed and is profitable for teaching reproof correction and training in righteousness and this right here this is where a lot of people drop off bible's interesting I can believe there's a historical Jesus, but you lost me with the Bible is the actual inspired, God-breathed word of God. I I can't go there. They will say it's unreliable because men, humans, wrote the book. Well, if you believe that, then you should go home immediately and burn every single book that you have in your house. Because last time I checked, every single book was written by a man or a woman. The reality that we're talking about here is that though Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, for example, wrote the books, that they were inspired by the Holy Spirit himself, led by the Holy Spirit himself. And often the response will be, well, I'm a person of science. Now I've got the trump card, science. Well, here's the thing with science. Science is valuable. Science is important. Science cannot take us all the way. This is what science can do. Science applies when you can apply the scientific method to something. And there's three things that have to be in place for you to use the scientific method. It has to be observable, measurable, and repeatable. If you want to use scientific method, observable, measurable, and repeatable, you don't ever use the scientific method to assess historical events. You cannot use the scientific method to prove that George Washington was the first president of the United States because it is not observable, it is not measurable, and it is not repeatable. If you want to assess the validity or invalidity of a historical event, then you use the evidentiary method, the evidence method. It would look essentially like a a courtroom or a trial setting. And here's what you'd do. You'd call up reliable witnesses, wouldn't you? You call up reliable witnesses and see, are their stories corroborated? Do they, do they match? Well, pastor, what would that look like? It might look like 66 books written by over 40 different authors over the course of 1,500 years in three different languages with over 23,000 different archaeological digs confirming the historicity of what Scripture says. Maybe with astounding internal corroboration that what these eyewitnesses say matches up, and with astounding external corroboration, because even the early church and the later church fathers agree, and contemporary historians agree with those same 23,000 archaeological digs. I choose to believe the Bible, because it's a reliable collection of historical documents, written down by eyewitnesses in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. It reports supernatural events and fulfillment of specific prophecies, and it claims to be divine rather than human in origin. And, oh, by the way, I tried it, and it worked for me. If you're coming to Christianity and to the Word of God and to to Jesus himself for the first time, let me just say this. I've spoken to your heart extensively today. Let me speak uh, to your head quite a bit today. But the Bible doesn't drive a wedge there. It's not head or heart. So let me just speak head and heart for just a second. Um, Faith. The Bible, God himself invites us into a faith and a trust relationship. We must come to him in faith. We must say, Lord, the way that I have lived my life doesn't make sense. And Lord, I believe that you are true. I believe that my sins are a massive problem and that I cannot have an eternal relationship with you. Outside of you Sending your son, Jesus, to die on the cross and rise again for my sins. I want to know you personally. I want to have a saving relationship with you. My point to you this morning is that faith is not blind and it is not dumb. And anyone, that college professor or anyone else, social media, whatever, uh, Christians are fools for believing what you believe. No. We have astounding reasons to believe what we believe. But I trust in God by faith. I have tried it. It does work for me because Jesus is real, because he's revealed himself in his word. He's Lord, he's Savior. Jesus says to doubting Thomas, Thomas wouldn't believe that Jesus historically rose from the dead until he could put his hands in the holes in Jesus' hands, right? And then Thomas says, my Lord and my God. He saw and he believed. And then what does Jesus say in the very next line? He said, blessed are those who don't see and still believe. That's you and me. I don't have to have been physically present like Thomas. Blessed are those who, who don't see and still believe. Turn to Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak truth. Thank you that you speak grace. Father, many times, as, as human beings, we don't speak the truth, and we sure don't speak grace, love, forgiveness. But Lord, you have done both perfectly. I feel like their intention every day, and yet you've done both perfectly. Thank you that you have given us both the confirmed word of God, the 66 books that we can hear from you daily. Father, thank you that you've given us prayer that we can speak to you 24-7. You're always listening, and you promise to always answer better than we can even ask. You promise to use everything for our good, and Lord, we are astounded by who you are. Father, the Christian faith is not about look at me, look at how good I am, look at the way that I obey all the rules, look at how perfect I am, see how I'm better than those other people. Father, you know that the Christian faith is look at Jesus, look at who he is. Look at what he's done. Look at what he's promised. Look at how it's been fulfilled and come true. And look at how he says he's coming again one day to take us home. Father, we believe in sin. We believe in Jesus' death. We believe in his resurrection. And Lord, we believe in a real place called heaven that you are gonna take your people home one day. We don't know when. It doesn't matter when. We believe by faith. Lord, grow our faith. Grow our trust and reliance on you. And Father, when we, when we interact with people who have questions or, or maybe they don't have questions, they just have nasty answers. Father, when people will be antagonistic and attack our faith, help us to represent Jesus well and to speak the truth in love. Help us not seek to win arguments. Help us to seek to win people. Help us to be able to show the truth and the grace that is inherent in who Jesus was and is and always will be. And we'll give you all the praise. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.